Let That Shit Go to Find Peace and Happiness with Nina Purewall is the show we have for you today. Nina is the founder of Pure Minds, a social enterprise focused on wellness. She faced an unexpected childhood tragedy, which inspired her mindfulness and meditation journey over 20 years ago. Her book, Let That Shit Go, is about finding peace of mind and happiness in your everyday life. Our conversation covers the power of being present, letting go of control, celebrating wins, and much more. Nina, thanks for joining me today. Where I'd love to start with you is if you can give our readers a bit of a bio about yourself before we dive into your book, Let That Shit Go. I certainly can. I got into mindfulness, ancient wisdom, meditation, actually in the mid-90s. I went through an unexpected tragedy, really was searching for answers. From there, tried to follow the herd and follow that path, got my degree in business, had a great career in sales and marketing, hit kind of a peak point of stress through the corporate grind, wanted to do something drastic. So I took a year sabbatical, went and lived in an ashram or a monastery for a year, completely unplugged, came back that year and realized there is so much about ancient wisdom to share with the corporate environment or with anyone dealing with high anxiety, stress, initial depression thoughts. It was 2011 when I came back. So not many people were talking about mindfulness and meditation at that time. So went back into corporate and eventually a few years later started my business, Pure Minds, where I do corporate workshops and workshops for communities on how to let things go, how to get yourself out of the way. I'm also a published author, as you said, for the book, Let That Shit Go. And here we are today. I'm six years into my my business. Uh, I love what I do. I think there's so much power in ancient wisdom and finding that peace and getting grounded through mindfulness and meditation. And I'm here to, to share it with the world and learn myself because it's a continued journey. Excellent. I love it. And w- where I'd like to start in the book is the idea of the pursuit of happiness, because we always see people searching for it, striving for it, not recognizing that it's inside us. It's a, it's a choice that we can make. And as you say, it's our true nature. We just have to reveal it to ourselves. What does that search for happiness look like? And how do people look inside versus looking outside? Yeah, I love that question. And typically people do look for happiness in two places. One is in the external, in that house, in that relationship, in that vacation, in that phone. And those things bring us happiness, but they also bring us frustration and worry and anger and fear. And the second place we look for happiness is in the future. When I get that promotion, when I find that partner, when I have those kids, when I can travel the world. So all of those things, as I said, bring happiness, but it's temporary happiness. How do we find that permanent happiness? And everybody who tells me, you know, I'm on a search to find happiness. I always say, you don't have to search for it. It's already there. So ancient wisdom talks about how our true nature is happiness. If you think of yourself as an infant or a child, or if you know children in your life, they're inherently happy, right? They cry for very practical reasons if they're tired or they're hungry, but they're inherently happy. And somewhere along the way, something a parent said or an aunt said or a family member or teacher or coach 
said something that bring, brought on all these challenging emotions and that established itself in tweenhood and then in teenhood. And now we're fully functioning adults looking for happiness on the external and, and validation on the external when it's already part of our true nature. So the real path is not searching for it outside, knowing it's inside, but getting all the shit out of the way so we can actually experience that happiness. That's a very important part you mentioned there is, is us with our children. As parents, how can we modify our behaviors from how we traditionally may do that so we can help condition our children to search out them, outside of themselves a little bit less? Actually, I think it's the reverse. I think we can actually learn from our children at that age right? I think they will stop at a fire hydrant and be in awe. I know you did a podcast on being in awe. You know, they can look at a cloud and say, oh my gosh, that looks like a heart. They are in the moment. They are present. They are inherently mindful. So I think if we can kind of learn that from them versus all the expectations, you know, there's so much pressure on kids, karate, piano, basketball, you know, we tend to inspire that external thinking. So I think if we can actually learn from them at that young age, it's so empowering for us to then kind of feed that back to them and them to us. And what we're wanting to learn is this idea of being present. And you also talk about being one, not on autopilot, and two, an observer of our own minds. What does that look like for our listeners? And, and how are we looking for these negative thought patterns when we're observing? Yeah. So we talk in the book about the two parts of the mind. There's the chatty mind. And this is the mind we are so often associated with. We think on average 60,000 thoughts a day, and we are aware of less than 1% of them. So the chatty mind is constantly going. You know, I, I say to some people, treat your mind like a child. It's literally like this out of control toddler all over the place. So treat it like a child, even give it a name. So we can create some distance from our thoughts um, because so many of us think we are our thoughts, but we're so much more than our thoughts. So how do we do that? We lean into the other part of our mind, which we refer to as the observing mind. The observing mind simply observes what the chatty mind is doing. It doesn't judge it. It doesn't try to solve for those thoughts. It just says, hey, Clint, you're, you're worrying about work a little too much. Thinking about money, you know, often you're really stressed about this relationship. It just simply observes and it can get you out of that space. Cause once you start going down the rabbit hole, right, then, then it's kind of over. And the first chapter of the book is awareness. Once we can be aware of the thoughts, then we can actually do something about it. Otherwise it's all happening subconsciously. When I first started this exercise, I believe it was the most significant change in my life for sure was that ability to not shut off, but moderate and listen to and say, oh, funny little chatty mind. I think I, I called mine my monkey mind and I would just say, okay, like you're being silly now. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just let you go. But it was this idea of thought auditing. What was a tool that I used, which is a CBT tool, as I understand it. And you talk about the idea of mind dumps and visualizations, which reminded me a fair bit of that. What does that look like for our listener as a way to get what's in there onto the page so that they can then say, well, wait, that's not 
true because yeah. most of what that chatty mind's throwing at us is negative recurring thought patterns. Exactly. So 80% of our thoughts, according to studies, are said to be negative, negative or self-deprecating. And I love what you said in the beginning. It's not about resisting the thought. Let the thought come in. You know, don't resist it because when we resist it, we end up suppressing and repressing. Let it come in, acknowledge it, and then let it go. And I think that's how, and there's different ways. This path is so personal. So there's different ways of how to let that thought go, but acknowledging it's there in the first place and then doing something about it. So you talked about the mind dump and that is just taking a few minutes and writing it down, getting it all out of your head because it's akin to having a grocery list, right? In your head. So I got to get apples, oranges, bananas, crackers, and cheese, right? And it's going over and over in your head. Apples, oranges, bananas, crackers, cheese, apples, oranges, bananas. The second we write it down, what happens? We don't need to think about it. It's in our little purse or, you know, our little fanny pack, because that's what's cool now. And we go grocery shopping and it's there, right? And in the same way, a mind dump just lets you get it from your head onto paper and out of your system. And when, when people mind dump, I often encourage, don't judge, don't overthink, you know, swear, come out as naturally as possible. So you're getting it all out of your system. And then there's a release that happens where it's no longer kind of overwhelmingly sitting in your head and it's on paper. So there's different ways to release those thoughts, to move through them, different techniques of meditation or using mindfulness to kind of acknowledge the thought and then let it go. And do you ever, in, in my mindfulness classes, I got in a little trouble for doing this, but do you ever have them on the one side of the page, you're writing down, here's the thought I keep having. On the yes. other side of the page, you're writing down, here's a more logical thought that could be the answer. And then I'll come back five, 10 minutes later and look at the thoughts I was having and what's probably more logical. And, and an example that I give to a lot of married couples is your partner asks you to load the dishwasher and your initial thought is they think I'm lazy and hate me. And you write that down and then you write down more logical. They're probably tired. They cook dinner. Yes. They just want some help. Da, 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 whatever the reason is. And you come back five minutes later and you're like, well, that's probably more logical than they think I'm lazy and hate me. Do, do you ever do that as part of the mind dump? That is one of my crux exercises when I talk about self-smack talk or even imposter syndrome is let's understand first what these thoughts are that you're thinking. Because as, as I said, it often happens on a very subconscious level. We don't even realize we're not thinking, I'm not good enough for this job. I'm not good enough for this relationship. It happens very subconsciously. So when you write it down, you actually see, and this is why I do workshops and not keynotes because it's so subtle. It's, it's a great way to internalize the information. So when people write down their negative thoughts, they're often pretty shocked. I had no idea I was even thinking these thoughts. And then we go through a process of evaluating each one. Actually, for the first thing I say is think about someone who unconditionally loves you. Would they look yes. at this list and say, that's bang on. You are definitely not good enough for your job. You are not attractive at all. You need to lose some weight. You know, all of the, no, they would look at this and they, I don't, the world does not see you this way. So we are so much harder on ourselves than how the world sees us. So then we take, go through the process of taking each thought and pretending we're in a court of law. And let's build a defense case against why this thought is not true. Like if I'm not good enough for my job, well, you just got a promotion. You work for one of the largest accounting firms in the world. 
you just got kudos for a project that you just did. And you start to rationally see who you really are when you go through that process. So it's so important to take those steps. And the mind will still think that thought because we've been thinking it for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, right? So the mind might think that thought, but the more you work on it, that thought is going to trigger you, come up a lot less. And when it comes up, it's going to trigger you a lot less. You'll be able to tackle it. It won't affect you as much. Um, So it's this real process of neuroplasticity, of taking these grooves that have been built in for so many years and rewiring your brain to start thinking of yourself differently. And what's important there is you highlighted the idea that we want to picture someone who loves us unconditionally. Instead of recognizing that the person that needs to love us unconditionally is ourselves, which brings up the the next part where you talk about the idea of self-love. And I loved the line that Tanya Porter said to you, which was, if you don't love yourself unconditionally, you won't have the capacity to love others unconditionally. And it, it reminded me of the concept of if you have an empty cup, you can't fill other people's cups. And then a chapter later, I read that. So I was like, yes, I had the right metaphor at the right time. So, you know, for our listeners who haven't heard about your empty cup and fill your cup first, what are we talking about there? And and why is it so important on their journey to let shit go? I love that. And Tanya Porter was a fantastic meditation teacher I had. And when she first said that to me, I kind of thought, that's not true. I love so many people unconditionally, but I know I could do with some more love. And the more I reflected on it, I did go to that cup analogy of if we're running on empty, our love is going to come from a place of exhaustion, of obligation, of expectation. It's not, it's going to come from a place of having to give love, not wanting to give love. So when our cup is full, when we take time to do things for ourselves, when we evaluate what's going on in here and we're kinder and more compassionate to ourselves, we're filling our cup and then we want our love to come from a place of runneth over. Yes. So it's natural and not from a place of, oh my gosh, I got to do this for my kid. I got to do this for my partner. You know, you're already full. And I say this to parents all the time, you know, you're doing everything for your kids. And at the end of the day, then I can put my feet up and have that glass of wine or relax and watch Netflix. Why not before grocery shopping, take half an hour, go to a coffee shop, read a book, fill your cup a little, and you're going to come back a better version of yourself, more calm, more wanting to give that love than coming from a place of emptiness and exhaustion all the time. And when, when you talk about that emptiness and exhaustion, some of the listeners are going to say, well, Clint, Nina, that's nice, but you guys have all the time in the world, which may not be true. How, if I'm stressed and I'm overwhelmed, I don't have time for that. How does the idea that they can do a software reset or they can use the power of rest, how does that help them with what we're talking about? Yeah. So a couple of things there. One is that there's this whole concept of self-care and self-care Sundays and going to the golf course and, you know, a day at the spa, time with your friends. And all of that is so important when it comes to filling your cup. But the crux of self-love, the crux of self-care and compassion is actually all up here. And this is why I love mindfulness. It's all in the mind. How can we start talking to ourselves 
nicely. Maybe we don't have to do anything. Maybe we just have to start our day by saying some affirmations or, hey, you know what? I am a really great parent and I'm planning an amazing day. Not, oh my gosh, I have to do this. I have to do that. So changing the mindset can be a really empowering way. And the reason why the rest is so important or taking that 20 minutes or half an hour is to activate the parasympathetic nervous system because our sympathetic nervous system is constantly activated, which, you know, people who've studied, you know, yoga or heard of this, this concept, it was for when we were cave people and we were being chased by the saber toothed tiger and our lives were threatened. So our our sympathetic nervous system would, would activate and we'd actually become superhuman versions of ourselves. Our muscles strengthen, our hunger suppresses, blood actually moves away from our skin. So if we get scratched, we're not bleeding out. I mean, the body is so brilliant. But what's happening in today's world is that's being activated through email, through an argument with our partners, through work stress. So we're always in this mode where our sympathetic nervous system is activated. So rest and relaxation, doing something you love, strumming the guitar, going for a walk, taking that art class, that all activates the parasympathetic nervous system, puts our system into a relaxed state, and then we're more calm. We're showing up as better versions of ourselves and whatnot. There's, there's a whole trickle effect to things that happen. That's why I say resting is productive because we live in the society where it's yes. like, keep going, keep going, keep going. Otherwise, we're not productive. We're not going to achieve. Well, guess what? I tell all these executives at company, you're going to be more efficient. You're going to be more productive. You're going to be more focused. You're going to be better at decision making. If you actually take the time to not check your email at night and put yourself in that mode and you rest and you wake up a lot more clear, that's another way to fill your cup. And do you have, let's say you have only five minutes or 10 minutes between meetings. You have a, you're having a back to back day. Do you have a, a routine or a simple habit that you engage in that lets you get that parasympathetic reset? For me, it is, you know, my meditation practice, but mindfulness is in the everyday. And a couple of things to do when you're feeling it and you have five minutes is, I mean, I know it's so overstated, but take a couple of really deep breaths. And I say really deep breaths because it's so, you know, everyone says, oh, take a couple of breaths. We've forgotten how to breathe. We breathe from our chest level. And when, when we really, if you look at infants, they're breathing from their diaphragm. So learning yes. how to take a couple of really deep breaths. And, and the more shallow your breathing is, the more quote unquote, negative the emotion is, right? The more anger, worried, panic, the more shallow our breathing is. So we need to take that breathing deep, taking a couple of deep breaths. The grounding technique is great as well. This people use this for, you know, panic attacks or anxiety attacks, leaning into your senses acutely. What am I seeing? What am I feeling? What am I hearing? What am I touching? Um, and that gets you into the present moment and a really fun other technique. And I know it's a little, a little out there, but when I came back from the monastery or the ashram, I was back in corporate and one of the monks, you know, was visiting Toronto. And, and I said to him, you know, being in the redwoods and being present and studying mindfulness and meditation is one thing. I'm in the real world now. I've got, you know, financial stress. I've got family stress. I've got work stress. How do you actually be present in all of this? And he gave me a very, simple and practical answer. He said, start by saying out loud what you're doing. So he said, let's say you're doing the dishes. Your dialogue is going to sound like this. Now I'm putting soap on this sponge. Now I'm making circular motions on this pot. Now I'm rinsing this pot. Now I'm putting it on the drying rack and the chatty mind will run off, you know, maybe 30 times in 15 minutes. And we just use the observing mind to bring it back and bring it back and, and train ourselves on how to get 
present. So if we're feeling all this anxiety and anxiousness, just try to spend the next two minutes being fully present. And because so often we are physically doing something like cooking or laundry or working or sitting in a meeting, but mentally we are somewhere else. So if we can just connect the two and be present where we are physically, a great way to do that is to talk it out. So taking a couple deep breaths, using the grounding technique, speaking out loud with your do- with what you're doing, meditation. And this path is really, really personal. So you really have to lean in and be aware and intuitive to what works for you. And we really want to have the listeners focus on some key things there. The idea of, of mindfulness, and I, I usually say paying attention to the present moment on purpose without judgment, that's the goal. And meditation, a lot of people get excited about the meditation and they think, well, I've got to become a, an expert meditator. It's like, well, wait a second. We want you to become an expert mindfulness person. And meditation is one of the tools that is going to allow you to exercise that mindfulness yes. muscle. And as you talked about, that ability to just keep bringing the awareness back. It's going to wander, bring it back. It's going to wander, bring it back. What are some of the meditation concepts or ideas that you would give the listener early on their journey that will help them adopt that level of mindfulness we want them to have to be able to let shit go? Great question. And meditation is like going to the gym for your mind. Yes. The mindfulness is in the everyday. The meditation is going to the gym and it is constantly active. I mean, we, you know, we work, let's say we work to get that six pack at the gym when we work six months to get there. We can't just stop going. (laughs) Six packs are going to stay. It's active. We got to keep going. So meditation is, you know, the time we're taking to really observe the mind because nothing else is going on. So we're acutely aware of what's going on in here. So for beginners, I'm going to not talk about strategies. I'm going to talk about meditation myths because Mm. there's a lot of hangups around meditation. And one of the biggest things I get is, Nina, I can't meditate. Why? My thoughts don't stop. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. They They never never will. (laughs) I have been meditating for 17 years and I don't think I've, well, I know I have never had a meditation where I haven't had 10 or 100 or 1,000 thoughts just come through. That is part of the chatty mind. It's going to do that. So what do we do with these thoughts? We don't resist them. We allow them to come in and then we let them go. And a beautiful visualization, I know it's a little cheesy, but it's to pretend, you know, we're the ever-present sky and the thoughts are like little clouds just going by. So when they come in, it's sometimes I picture them in little clouds, or you can say you're the depths of the ocean and your thoughts are just waves, you know, coming from the ocean and back into the ocean. So these beautiful visualizations are all nature-based, right? Because it came from 10,000 years ago. So that's one big myth. The other is don't judge your practice. There's no such thing as an experienced meditator as a good or bad meditation. It's between you and you. Like you said earlier, the only person we're going to live the rest of our lives with is ourselves. So we need to get intimate with ourselves, right? So, so don't judge the practice. The fact that you sat and meditated and sometimes the thoughts will be overwhelming because it's something we've suppressed for so long. And so finally, when we're sitting quiet with our mind, it all comes up and that's a good thing. Because we're realizing you can't let shit go unless you bring shit to surface. So sometimes those meditations are good. There's no such thing as a bad meditation. And then this whole notion that we have to sit for half an hour and be quiet and we're going to be feel totally zen. Take away the pressure of it. 
do what comes natural. Maybe you start with a minute a day for a week. And then the next week you go to two minutes a day, make it something that makes you feel peace, not something you have to add to your to-do list. So, you know, those are three ways and and kind of myths I want to just address with meditation that anybody can do it. It's a personal practice. And then on the flip side, what you can do, there are so many apps. There's so much on Spotify. Do what works for you. Maybe it's nature sounds. Maybe it's mantra meditation. Maybe it is silence. Maybe it's listening to really calming music. Maybe it's a guided meditation. And that is going to evolve. If I think of my meditation practice, every few years it evolves to something else or changes. So lean in. We don't listen inward. We're so focused on the external. We don't listen inwards to our intuition, what feels good. So if that podcast worked for 95% of the population, maybe it doesn't work for you. And that's okay. Lean inwards and find that peace through modalities that work for you. An insight timer is one that has free and paid options that I'm always a big fan of for people because it has just such a wide array of choices for people. And for you, Nina, at this stage, is, is there any minimum effective daily dose that you found for yourself? As long as I'm getting this much in, I'm staying in the place I want to be in mindfully. It's an interesting question. And I try not, I don't want to say a number because I feel like if I say 30 minutes, everyone, okay, that's the goal. There's no goal. You know, sometimes yeah. I'll have 45 minute meditation and my mind will be super active and it's the constant observing my chatting mind, observing my chatting mind. Sometimes I'll have a five minute meditation and I'll get right into it and have very few thoughts. And, you know, and you'll notice that the space between your thoughts will become, you know, larger with time, but Every day, it depends on what's going on in your personal life, what stresses are coming up. So it's not about the time. I would say it's how you feel coming out of that meditation, whether it's five minutes or 45 minutes. And and one of the powerful tricks of meditation ties to an area of acceptance that I want to dive into with you. And it's the idea that we can't control what happens to us in life but we can control how we react to what's ha- what happens. And Viktor Frankl talks about it as, as the gap between the stimulus and the response, and that's where the magic happens, which to your point just now, I find meditation is one of the tools that can help us increase that gap between the stimulus and response. And as a prompt for this one, I wanted to read you a part of the script of your book where, where you write, remember, our lives are made of little moments that all add up. If we choose to make each one of them awesome by shifting our mood and accepting what's in front of us, well, that can add up to a pretty stellar life. Can you color that one in for the readers or listeners? Definitely. definitely. So, you know, the tragedy that I went through at 16 is I, you know, I lost my dad and my brother very unexpectedly. And my favorite quote at that time was life is 10% what you make it and 90% how you take it. Right. So we can't control so much of what happens to us. And that's obviously the most extreme example of losing someone or being diagnosed with your own illness. But I think we have a very false sense over what we have control over in life. And at minimum, what we can control is our attitude, is how we're approaching it, how we're handling what has come at us. And 
you know, I had a, a monk say to me once, every time, because I encourage my clients, when you have thoughts of things you can't control, put it in a bucket of, I can't control this and have a bucket of what I can control. And I say, you know, if you can control even 1%, go for it. But if it's really something you can't control, like the weather or the weather on vacation or the pandemic or, you know, external circumstances, inflation, we're all experiencing, put it in that can't control bucket. And, And this monk said to me, every time you think a thought about something that you can't control, it's a dead thought. It's a dead thought. It's not propelling you forward in any way. It's not driving your efficiency. It's not driving you focus. It's your focus. If anything, it's actually draining your energy to keep thinking about. And often these two, 3 a.m. thoughts are of things we can't control. That person, that situation. So if we put in the can't control bucket, doesn't mean we're not going to have feelings about it. We can have feelings about it. We can be angry, mad, sad, but we can't do anything about it. And that inherent knowing helps us shift focus on, let's focus on what we can control. And as I said, at minimum, we control how we can control how we're reacting to something. And if you take that even to a bit of a broader societal level, a lot of people can get so stressed and locked down and almost to the point of paralysis, because they're always thinking at that macro level of, climate change and human needs here or this issue there. And they let it paralyze them because they're like, it's such a, a challenge for humankind. How can bringing that down to the micro and saying, well, here's what I can do that I can control. I can not drive a gasoline powered car. I can do X, I can do Y. How do we go from the macro to the micro? So it's combining that, that awareness, but tying that into the, what I can control to get out of that paralysis. I think it's about awareness first, how much time we're spending in that, as you call the macro space and acknowledging that okay, there is nothing I can do about the fact that we are where we are today. Humankind has got us here and focusing on what are the changes that I can make? What can I start doing about this? Like you said, you know, maybe taking in the bus more, you know, joining a community program when it comes to inspiring what to do about climate change. What are the actions? Okay, this is happening. Yes, it's, it's worrisome. It's anxiety, you know, inducing. But there, it is, it just is there, there is nothing we can do about it, uh, given where we are, but what we can do about it is, you know, actively try to work on things to address climate change. And if we spend our energy on that, instead of the worry, imagine the difference of the impact we can have to ourselves and to the world. Yes. In the area of acceptance, you had so much wonderful ways that people can work on or tools that they could use. And, and it'd be remiss if I didn't bring up the art of surrender, which yes. may sound odd to the listener. Wait, how are we accepting by surrendering? What does that look like? Surrender is incredibly empowering. And surrender is when we. We are truly in the flow of things. We are truly in the moment. 
we don't have a, we don't label things that come to us as good or bad. They just are, you know, okay. I'm faced with the situation. Let's not waste energy on, oh my gosh, how did this happen? Why did it happen? Maybe I should have done this differently. Coulda, shoulda, woulda. You know, we're just focusing, right? There's so much coulda, shoulda, woulda. We're just simply focusing on it happened. Okay, accepted. Let's figure out how to move through this. And even as we figure out how to move through it, surrendering to how it unfolds. And, you know, I work with a lot of executives who are like, how can I not focus on the future? And I get it. I worked in marketing for many years in sales. You know, we did brand plans two, five, 10 years out. We need to focus on, we need to plan for the future when things happen. But the surrender comes in letting go of that plan. Hey, this is where I want my business to go for the next two, five, 10 years. And then let go and see how things unfold, right? We all planned for 2020 (laughs) and that became an absolute shit show, right? So that was, we had no choice but to surrender. But if we don't come from that place of this is happening to me, this is happening for me instead, we're at a place where we're at ease with it and we're in a state of flow with it. We're not trying to force it because that's where all the energy waste. We're trying to force it to be something else. So surrender is when we can just accept what's happening, make a plan, be practical about it. I'm a very A-type practical person. But then let go and then adjust accordingly, you know, just allowing that flow, you know, let that shit go and then let that shit flow. And so many different ways we can take that. The area that I'd love to dive in, because you talked about, and we both chuckled with the coulda, shoulda, woulda. And so fuck the shoulds is something I can get behind. You know, we recently had Trisha Huffman on the show who wrote F the shoulds, do the wants. Can you tell our listeners what the shoulds are and why we want to F the shits? We are constantly shitting on ourselves. Okay. There are so many shoulds that we adhere to from a very young age. They actually start with our upbringing, right? You should, you should win this tournament. You should get an A. You should get into this universe. And then, you know, we adapt that and and it's gotten so much worse with social media. I mean, it, it starts with, you know, family and then it goes into our social circle. You know, everyone's having a kid. Oh, you should have a kid too. Everyone's buying a house. You should have a house too. Oh, everyone's making this, this amount, this bracket. You should be making six figures too. And we start kind of, you know, hearing this and then we hear it from the media. We see what the media is doing. And then social media is the worst because everyone is putting their top 2% of highlight reel. Yes. You know, and, and, if we're comparing ourselves to people on social media and everybody's best life, we're not comparing ourselves to anyone who actually exists that way. Because who's posting the nasty, you know, partner arguments we're getting in? No one's like, oh my God, I got a fat. No, they're posting the beautiful family vacations and the sexy date nights. And so we're constantly feeling like we should, oh, our lives aren't up to par. We should be doing this. We should be doing that. And so, you know, I got asked once in, in a podcast, how do you know if it's a should? that you should go for? And the answer is very simple. You have to do some introspection. Again, intuition, go inward. That's why it's so important to have a relationship with yourself. Is the should important to you? Maybe all your friends do have a house, but you want to rent for the rest of your life. You feel like that's most, you know, financially, I don't know if you'd agree with that, but you know, that's most financially sound for you. So, you know, 
If that's what's important to you, then let go of the should and let go of what everybody else is doing and do. Maybe you don't want kids. Maybe you want to travel the world. Lean into that. So letting go of all the shoulds that we're adhering to. Even now I think back, I go, why did I go to business? Because everyone else is doing it and I should do it and I should get that big career in sales and marketing. You know, but I mean, I loved my work at the time, but now I love my work. You know, I was leaning in. I was doing what I should be doing according to society. So really evaluating when, and and we know, we know, because we can feel it inside when we are, you know, going into work and it's like, I am not feeling this. And and I had a, a monk say to me in California, as long as you're walking a path that's not meant for you, you're going to be walking with a rock in your shoe. Oh, oh, that hits. So good, right? So yeah. I came back from the, the ashram and I thought, I'm going to get rid of all of these rocks in my shoe. And of course, there's a practical application for that. I'm not saying we can all follow our hearts and make millions of dollars. Like We can, we can get there. There's a practical application in the interim, but let go of all these pressures that we're, we're shooting ourselves about and lean into what's, what's important for us. And it's so incredibly empowering when we let go of, of the noise. Absolutely. And, and I've been on the journey that you're talking about from business. I've probably been doing that for about 23 years now. And there, I think there's a finite amount of time that I can continue to walk with the rock in my shoe before I am doing full time what I believe I was put here to do and enjoy and to your point, love, which is largely what we're doing right now and writing and mindfulness and there's so much more. But anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll skip that. One of the things I, I loved that you talked about there was this idea of people's front of stage self as one of our past guests referred to it. And we never get to see the backstage. I've labeled that myself now and and we'll keep using it till everybody does the Kardashian effect. And and I say that and and I'll always repeat, not because I have anything against the Kardashians. I I love what they've done. They've done a very good job, but it feels to me that they were one of the first groups to take that front of stage concept in such a way and level to monetize it and to show people always here's the best of life. Not recognizing what that does is tell people what they should want, what they could have. 99.8% of us will never have that. And, And so it creates that loop of I'm not doing enough. I'm not good enough. And and you talk about this with the idea of tech Zen. So one is we don't see the true stories. Two is we're always hunting that dopamine addiction. Did I get enough likes? Did I get enough retweets? Did people share my story? And so what is a tech Zen and how does it help us with the issues of the Kardashian. <laughs> there's so much to that question. There's so many, you know, Texan is a whole chapter. So there's so many different things we can do. And really it's all about creating boundaries because, you know, our addiction to tech is what gets us into this mess in the first place. And with the Kardashian piece, I like to flip the switch, especially for, and I know, you know, this is a podcast and this can air worldwide, but especially for us, you know, 
privileged people in North America who have access to food, shelter, water. You know, the executive workshops I do, the corporate workshops I do. I mean, I read a stat that said if you have 70,000 US dollars in cash or assets, you live in the top 1% of the world. Okay. So it's like 99% of the world is looking at you as the Kardashian. Yeah. But do we see that? No, we, we see the, the Ferraris and the Lamborghinis and the mansions and da, da, da. well, guess what? 99% of the world is looking at you in your four bedroom home or couch and TV or access to water or toilet or da, da, da going, wow, I wish I had that. So sitting in that. And then, you know, to layer on the tech piece, we are so hyper connected these days and it's driving depression. It's driving anxiety. It's driving low efficiency rates. It's driving comparison. Like you said, we're never feeling up to snuff. So, you know, it's so important if we're going to be on social media, be very protective of, of your feed. Follow people who inspire you. Yes. Body positivity is a big one. You know, there's, I mean, anyone can look like anything online. It's ridiculous. The filters, you know, that people use these days. So you're not even looking at someone's face who's actually real, you know, so follow authentic accounts, follow accounts that inspire you, follow accounts that you learn from, that you feel educated from, that you're naturally inspired by, as I said. So if we follow a lot of the stuff that makes us not feel good, it's going to subtly impact us unless we're aware. And this is what the youth, you know, the youth sometimes can't, don't have that discernment, right? So be aware. If, if I follow Kim Kardashian, I'm following her because I want some business tips or I'm following her, not because I think her life is realistic for me and making me feel like constant shit because I don't have what she has, right? Because that is quite unattainable. So I think, you know, creating boundaries and knowing when you're getting, we talk in the book about the tech hangover. Yeah. When you're scrolling and you're getting to that point, you say it's akin to like opening a bag of chips, right? Like you never just have the five chips that you promise yourself you're going to eat. Like before you know it, you're feeling the crumbs at the bottom of the bag. Same with social media. We're scrolling and suddenly we're, we're so tired. The phone's like falling on our face from, you know, lying in bed and scrolling. So know when we're hitting that hangover part. You, again, awareness, you know, instead of subconsciously just scrolling, be aware, this is starting to not make me feel good. Or you know what? This account, every time I see a post, it actually makes me feel not good enough or that I should be more like this person. Unfollow. And to be honest, we also talk about unfollow people in real life. Yes. Yes. It's okay to unfollow people in real life. Love that shit. And I think in the pandemic, we experienced this, right? Because we had all this isolation. In Canada, we had like six lockdowns or something. So we had all this isolation. And now people are starting to get together last year, get together, those big group dinners. And suddenly you're like, I don't really feel like hanging out with this group. Like they don't actually make me feel good about who I listen to that. So surround yourself in tech, in real life with what uplifts you, not what drains you and make you feel like you makes you feel like you should be something that you're not naturally. And something you said there really resonates because I'm in Vancouver. Canada with you. So had a lot of lockdowns similar to you did. You might've actually got out sooner than we did, but what it allowed was a bit of reset of priorities. And what I mean there is no kids activities, can't visit family, can't spend time with friends. All of a sudden, what you could do was, well, what do I really want to do with my life? 
How do I want to spend my time? What activities do I want to engage in? And then when COVID went away, technically we had a couple of people with COVID at work over the last two weeks. So it's not fully gone, yeah. but it's, it's not as material. So when COVID went away, a lot of people just went right back to what they were doing pre-COVID. Instead of taking that second to be aware and say, well, what did I learn from the COVID exercise about how I want to approach my life? So that's taking the awareness you're talking about. And how do I continue to do those things that I realized I love? And what does that mean I need to cut out? So similar to tech, what are those boundaries I need to put in place in real life? And people, maybe I need to cut out. What does that look like for you? Is, is that a shift that you made coming out of COVID back to reality? Absolutely is. And, and, and this is what happened to me in the ashram as well back in 2000. Mm. So I saw that same pattern happen to everyone, you know, so I completely disconnected. I had, you know, I was very addicted to work and my Blackberry or Crackberry as they called it at the time. So I said, no tech. I, I have no access to the internet this year. I have no access to, you know, friends, people, what's going I just want to go inwards. And it was actually really cool. I told my friends, if you want to get a hold of me, write me a letter. And I sent and received 150 handwritten letters that year. It was an incredible way to just get away from tech. So that, you know, I kind of went through that once, but I think that is such a beautiful silver lining of COVID is that we got the opportunity to go inwards because we had no choice. And coming out of that, yes, I did change a lot in terms of what I was allowing in my life. I also did a 20 week trauma healing program in that time. So there was a lot of shifting going on of, you know, the people pleasing and the wounds that I was healing. So yeah, I came out of that and I, I did let go of some you know, very long, you know, 20 year friendships, I did stop surrounding myself with things and people and social events that I felt obligated to go through to, you know, as a chronic people pleaser. So I was in every doing everything forever. So I really did come out of COVID and shift, you know, what's actually really important to me. And what are all the other things I'm doing that I'm doing them for society or because everyone else is doing them, but they're not really feeding my soul. They're not really fueling my fire. And when you do that, you go into self and there's so much more space to do you. And when you do just you and you're not, you know, influenced by all this, you're more empowered, you're more comfortable in your own skin. You care less about what everyone's thinking and saying. You're living from a much more authentic place. So I think it's an important evaluation. And I hope people did kind of pause and take the minute and not just jump back into that crazy, busy life. Because, and it's not too late. You can still do that. You can still say, Hey, does my kid really need to be in four things? Can we take away two? Do I really need to meet up with this friend group every Friday? Maybe we can do it yeah. once a month. <laughs> you know, what are the things we're adhering to that are just making? And, and, and again, lean in when you're driving or walking to that place, you can feel it. You're either really, or when someone calls, you either are super excited that they called or you're like, Oh, fuck. Yeah. You know, listen to that then, you know, and, and go inwards. And, that, and that's a gift of the, of the pandemic. And we can still continue to do that and evaluate what's adding to our life and what's draining us and start to remove some of the drains so we can have energy to focus on this and watch how it enhances your life. It's incredible. 
Oh, it's beautiful. And the, the other thing or the direction I'd love to pivot coming off of that is how people can use perspective to help them see their life and what they want. And something that you wrote that I thought was wonderful on this was when you're looking at life through a big picture lens, mm-hmm. you str- your stress levels take a big step back too. You think about everything you're grateful for and boom, life isn't so bad at all. It's actually fucking amazing. Now your stress level of eight or nine starts to feel more like a four or five. That's a perspective change in action. What does that look like? Yeah. So in the book, we talk about the micro perspective and the macro perspective. And in between all that is building a shit ton of resiliency, the more we can get to the macro. So if you think of a funnel, we're in the micro and it's not our faults. It's, 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 it's just the way our brain works. It's the way society works. We wake up in the morning and we're in our little macro bubble. I got to get back to these emails. I have to make lunch for so-and-so. I got to find matching socks. I got to shower. I got to do that. And we forget all the millions of things that we could be grateful for. And that's where the stress starts to ensue in in the micro. And that's why I love mindfulness because it doesn't require you to do anything. It just requires you to shift the lens and, and the kind of thoughts that you're having. So if we have more macro level thoughts, if we go to the bathroom to brush our teeth and turn on the tap and we're stressing about work, but instead we go to the bathroom and we turn on the tap and go, wow, I can turn on a tap and water will come out. You know, I have been to Ghana, Africa, where I've seen kids walk two kilometers for that bucket. We have a bath. Oh my gosh, I'm so stressed out. I need to have a bath. Turn on the water. How many kilometers would I have to walk in another village or country to get this? Like, we don't think those thoughts. Being alive. Yes. You know, I I watched this TED talk by Sathguru. He's an incredible monk. And he, he said once, one of the biggest things we take for granted in life is our own mortality. And it's not meant to instill fear or it's just to be grateful. He said, if we just wake up in the morning, that is the greatest miracle we could ask for. And if the four or five people we love the most wake up, what a blessing. But we don't think that way. And he said, you know, on average, 150,000 people won't wake up tomorrow. And of course, I went and Googled it. And yes, 151,000 is is the daily mortality rate. So when we just even open our eyes in the morning, instead of picking up our phones and going scroll, 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 just have 30 seconds. I'm alive. I'm healthy. I got my family. And that's putting your head into the macro. We open up our laptops instead of, oh my gosh, I have email. Wow. I have a laptop. I have a company that pays me this much money to do what I do. You know, I'm able to afford that. I mean, there's so many other thoughts (laughs) that we can lean into instead of the micro. So if we ensue more thoughts of the macro, suddenly the micro stress doesn't feel so stressful. And I think because I've gone through a lot of loss in my life, you know, I tend to have that, okay, I'm alive. Like it's really hard for me to get super stressed out unless it's something really extreme because at the end of the day, I'm alive. I got my family. Okay. So what this project is due now a week earlier or, okay, I have a little bit of extra workload. Okay. My, you know, my kid got hurt or something. Everything is in perspective. And when we have that macro perspective, we can become so much more resilient because the little things don't throw us off. We can kind of shrug them off and be like, okay, well, guess what? All of this is in line, food, shelter, water. 
we got to, we got to inspire more of that kind of thinking. And that's the power you talk about of zooming out and looking at the big picture. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy what you're hearing so far and want me to be able to get your favorite guests on this show, please do me a quick favor. Subscribe to the show and leave me a rating. The 30 seconds of your time will mean a ton to me. The other one that I thought was relevant, especially as it relates to the conversation we just had about social media and never feeling good enough, is the idea of remembering you're probably at a point today that at some point in your life you wished you were at. And how can we take stock of that to remember, well, wait a second. I personally, if you told me growing up, small city boy picture, you know, Bolton or or New Caledon where you live and now living in the big city with a family, nice house, making money. Like I never would have conceived that I would be where I am today. So how can we use that as a tool to help us with our perspective exercise? Yes. And by the way, you live a very inspired life. It's very oh. inspired by reading your bio and all the things that you've accomplished you. and all the, you know, you keep learning. It's just, it was incredible. So keep doing what you're doing. You know, I think that we need to, you know, spend more time celebrating. And I tell this to my corporate clients because it's like, you work on the project, it launches in two years. By the time it launches, you're like, yeah, yeah, I'm on to the next one. How often are we pausing to celebrate what we have accomplished? And yeah, 10 years. And I say to people, Think of yourself 10 years ago and all the work that you did to get to this point, whether it was, you know, get a degree or the job or pursue that passion. Are you pausing to say, wow, I'm here? Not often, because as I said, you know, happiness often lives in the future. When I get this, when I get that, well, guess what? 10 years ago, you were wishing for today when I have that house, when I have that family, when I have, and you're here. But now we're on to when I'm financially free, when I'm, and those are important goals to have. I'm not saying don't have those goals, but pause to celebrate where you've gotten to and appreciate and allow yourself to take that in. Sometimes like when we struggle with anxiety or, you know, depression or, you know, all of these, the mental health stuff, and we don't need a clinical diagnosis. Sometimes I think we all have depressive thoughts or anxious thoughts. You know, we're not allowing ourselves to feel joy. There's a little bit of fear in, oh, the second I feel joy, it means I've actually accomplished something. And I feel, it, and it was like, we fear that could get taken away at any moment. So it's so important to, when we have those moments and, and we celebrate all the time, you know, if my daughter goes from a blue belt to, you know, a brown belt in karate and we'll go out for dinner and we'll all get fun drinks and we'll go, cheers. You're, we're so proud of you. It took you six months to do that. And you know, not when are you going to your black belt? How long is it going to take? Yeah, yeah. You know, we tend as parents, when are you going you know, to win the tournament? How you play? Make sure your skills are. You had an awesome game. Oh my gosh. You scored 12 of the team's 80 points. Good for you. Let's celebrate that. You know, and it's not to create coddle kids or anything, but even to ourselves, we get a big project is launched at work that we've been working on for so long. And, and we're so enthralled in all the other projects we're working on that are midway. We can't see the one that actually took off that we had been spending all this. So when, you know, I tell executives, celebrate with your team. Are you celebrating enough when you get the wins and you're not always on to the next? So sitting in that celebration um, is is important. It's important. And and it takes away from the 80, 
you know, the 80% of the negative thoughts. And it focuses on like, you know, what you, and it's not meant to, you know, turn you into this big egoistic, like I've done it. It's just, we don't operate that way. We don't take enough time to pause and celebrate. So that's important to do. And you see that a lot, or or I see that a lot with high performers who never seem to take that pause, that breath, and to say, hey, wait a second, we've done some pretty cool shit. Like we've hit milestones, we've we've achieved financial targets, we've had our best year ever. It's always, well, this year's not enough, or why not this? And how does that burn out the people around us or on our team or even ourselves? Yeah. And I want to emphasize the high performer piece. High performers will get the performance review back and hear 99 things about how incredible they are. And one thing that they need to improve on, some constructive feedback, because that has to happen in performance reviews. And they will just hone in and magnify that one thing coming out of that meeting, right? Instead of being like, holy shit, my boss just said 99 things about what I did do well. So what is that doing to you? It's exhausting you. It's inspiring that not good enough thinking. We're not spending the moment saying, I achieved all of this. And then that's putting the pressure on your team. That's putting you know, subconsciously that could be affecting your family because you come home and you're like, man, they said that this is one thing that I just didn't get right. And and you're not telling your partner of the 99 other things that are said, right? So it's just like negative energy. You're just like sitting in that. So if we can, you know, take the constructive criticism and do something about it for sure, but also give ourselves a little pat on the back and celebrate as a team that, hey, we just accomplished this. It just it sets a different tone and it puts everyone into a different mental space that they're not always trying to achieve something and catch up that you are a high performer and you've been tagged as a high performer and allow yourself to sit in that and and congratulate yourself for being there. And then, yeah, let's work on that one thing. But you know what? Give yourself the gift of appreciating that and being proud of yourself for that. I love that. And Nina, I'm going to shift us to authenticity for, for a lot of young people when they come to us and ask, well, how do I grow on social and how do I do? One of the things we talk about is we'll be authentically you and you write, there is no one else on this planet who is meant to do what you are here to do. There really is only one magical you. That was actually very Dr. Seuss like. Like, I love that. (laughs) Your intellect, your personality, your favorite foods, your temperament, your passions, your very essence is yours alone. Different from any of the other 7.6 billion humans on the planet. You might have parents, siblings, friends who are similar to you, but no one is exactly the same. This is, of course, obvious, and yet it's something we consciously don't think about on a day-to-day basis. But there is great power in embracing everything that's different about ourselves, right down to the way we sneeze or how we hold our pen. Can you color that one in for our listeners? Yes, absolutely. Especially in the corporate environment, because that's where I do a lot of my work, is there's so much conformity. There's so much conformity. Everybody wants to be like someone else, do like uh, abide by these behaviors. And it's so important to lean into us. 
And when we lean into us, even sometimes a perceived weakness, I'll give you an example. I had someone report into me and she was an HSP. She was a highly sensitive person. And that was seen as a negative in all the other roles that she worked in because, you know, you're too emotional at work and you cry and And she ended up being my, my go-to because she was so intuitive to our clients. She was the one person I never had to come back from the meeting and be like, can you look into this and look into this and look? She already knew. Like, hey, I've already looked into that. And they said this and they mentioned that super into. So that was her superpower. And sometimes we perceive our superpowers as weaknesses. So we hide them and we suppress them and let's not be emotional and let's conform like everybody else. And then we don't have the gift. We're not embracing our gifts. And so, you know, coloring that in means being true to who we are, being authentic. And I think Gen Z actually does this really, really well. They're quite unapologetic about who they are in what they wear, in, you know, all the things that are coming out, like, you know, sexual fluidity, you know, how they show up, what they say. So I think we can kind of learn something, you know, from that. But, you know, there is only one you. And when we lean into what's important to us, what do we value? You know, what makes us tick? What sets our soul on fire? Forget the rest of the world. We're living from a truly authentic place. And that's where we can truly inspire. We cannot inspire from a place where our head and heart and soul are not aligned. You know, when we're trying to inspire from that place, there's, there's that rock in the shoe, right? So when we're more ourselves, we can lean into that and slowly and slowly get comfortable in our own skin being truly who we are. And when someone has let themselves go from that, so they, they've gone through life and, and it's draining to do, but they're masking who they really are and they're not showing up authentically. What are one or two things that, that you suggest to them as ways to step into that authenticity? That's a great question. And I lived in that place for a really long time where I was showing up inauthentically. I was showing up at the party, being the happiest person there, but probably the saddest or, you know, showing up, you know, at work. And this is exactly when I want it knowing I actually had another mission, you know, so a couple of things we can do to really lean into that authenticity is, is again, doing the work and going inwards and finding out what is important to us, what makes us tick and start to look at your life and evaluate where that gap is. You know, here are all the things I'm doing right now. Here's the job I have. Here's the passions I engage in. Here's my friend circle, but here's who I really am. And here's who I really want to be. Well, where are the gaps there? And where are you being inauthentic? And you don't have to make this a big career change or anything. It can be as simple as you're not speaking up. You know, you're sitting in the boardroom and even though you disagree with 80% of the room, you're not saying it. And so little things like speak your truth. Maggie Cotton, uh, she was an advocate of um, senior citizens. And she said, speak your truth, even if it makes your voice shake. It's not always, it's a very, very challenging process to go from conformity to living an authentic life, but start by doing it in small ways. At Christmas dinner, if someone says something that, you know, is inappropriate or throws you off, because then what happens? Then we leave that dinner and two, three o'clock in the morning, we have the best response, right? But we do. Yeah. 
going to email it to them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, it's eating us up inside. And, and that's taking up so much energy and mind space, right? So if we just say the damn thing, you know, it's we're being true to ourselves. So having a voice, speaking up, letting go of the shoulds, understanding what that gap is. There's so many micro ways to own your authenticity. Another big one is letting go of, of how you're perceived. When we come yeah. forward, it's like, oh, is everybody, is everyone good? Is that, and I almost, I almost walked away from the book deal because I learned all this amazing stuff from all these incredible sacred monks and ancient wisdom. And here now I'm putting swearing on it. So, you know, but it was my personality. I worked in sales. I have a potty mouth, but I'm very spiritual and I have that side of me too. So the book was so inherently me, but I was so afraid of people were going to completely feel like I disrespected, you know, there was all this chatter in my head, right? So, you know, understanding for yourself, you know, who you really are and letting go of the perception. And we have this example, or I talk about this example in my corporate workshops of imagine there's a tree and there's 20 photographers around the tree and everyone has to submit a picture. Well, someone's going to take a picture of the, you know, the bird's eye view. Someone's going to take a picture of just the, the trunk, maybe a leaf a flower, a root, the tree in totality, a little bird sitting on the tree, right? And everyone, you're going to have these 20 pictures of the tree. Well, guess what? That tree is you. And those photographers are all the people around you and how they perceive you. And they are perceiving you through their own lens. You might trigger someone because your sense of humor reminds them of their annoying aunt. You know, someone might have an affinity towards you because, hey, you talk like their best friend. So who's right and who's wrong? There is no right and wrong. Everyone's entitled to their lens and their experience and their conditioning, but it's their conditioning that they're looking at you through. So it doesn't matter. What matters is how you perceive yourself. And if you're happy with yourself and you're comfortable in your own skin. And so there's so many ways to lean into the authentic piece and let go of all this chatter around us that takes away from, you know, who we really are. And so much of that is us and the, the spotlight effect is, I believe, what we call it, where we think everybody's always thinking of us when in reality, they're living their own life and we're maybe, maybe uh, extra in the film of their life. And while you were saying, you know, everyone's perspectives and some might like this, some might not like that, what jumped in my head was the line that I believe was from your husband was... Oh, someone shot Gandhi. Yeah. So, so what is, where did that come from? And (laughs) how did that give you the perspective to be like, oh, oh yeah, yeah. Okay. That was a life-changing moment for me. And (laughs) and when I wrote that in the book, he goes, I don't even remember that I said that, but we were at the ashram together and my mom was there too. It was a beautiful experience. And so we were, you know, every Monday, every morning we'd go for these, we'd have six o'clock meditation class and then seven o'clock lecture. And then eight o'clock, we'd be free for a few hours. So we'd go on these beautiful hikes, like in the redwoods. And I was, you know, and they, they say, you know, you can go off to the mountains, but your mind is going to follow you. So of course I'm in this ashram in this beautiful, you know, environment. And my mind is still focused on, I was talking about someone who I was trying to get to like me. You know, I don't know why she doesn't like me. And I've tried doing this and I've written her letters and I've had hearts with her and I've done this for her kids and I don't understand, you know, and he turns to me and he says, Nina, someone shot Gandhi. And I'm like, looked at him, like, are you even paying attention to what I'm saying? 
And he was, and his perspective was, look at the person that Gandhi was. He fought for, through nonviolence, for freedom for an entire nation. And he is still revered and quoted today. But someone didn't like him enough to take his life, to shoot him. So if someone is not going to like Gandhi, certainly someone is not going to like you. And it was just this huge aha moment and almost this relief that, oh my gosh, not everybody has to like me. Not everybody has to approve of me. Not everybody has to give me a validation check mark or a like. Yeah. And that's okay. You know, let's get comfortable with some people are going to love and embrace what we do. And some people are going to judge what we do. And some people are not going to like what we do. And it doesn't matter. What matters is, are we loving what we're doing? Are we liking what we're doing? Are we loving ourselves through this process? Because there is going to be someone that's going to shit on us. Whether it, again, it's their own conditioning. Maybe they're triggered by us. Maybe they, you know, didn't follow their passion path and they're triggered. Or there's a number of reasons, but it doesn't matter why. Because we're never going to know why. You please this person and then this person's not going to like you. It's just, there's no end to it. You cannot please everybody. Not everybody's going to be like, oh, that person is so on point. No. So as long as we are rooted in who we are and we just let go of how it all lands, you know, and and, and with social, you know, you, you talk about social media, you know, when we post, post and then surrender, let go. Yes. hundred likes, you might get five likes, you might get 50 comments, like some of the most unexpected things, I'll get tons of comments. And then sometimes I'll make a freaking reel that will take me an hour and a half to make, and I'll get like 20 likes, you know? So it, you don't know what's going to land, but create the content, you know, and I, I posted this just the other day is for content creators, there's so much pressure to post every single day or times a day or follow the rules and yeah okay fine there there are rules against it but post because you authentically feel you want to share that message and now i say even if it lands with one person and that was a motivation for my book even if it impacts one person's life and something shifts in them it's worth it that is so powerful to me more than any type of financial gain or anything is the impact and post with that intent too if you change one person or shift one person, it doesn't matter if you get the 299 other likes. You've done something and you've shifted the world in a little, little itty bitty way. And the validation starts to go away because you're like, you know what? That's something from my heart and soul that I wanted to share that helped me. And whether everybody likes it or takes it, and sometimes it'll be in my DMs and they won't even like it. Someone in my DMs yeah. will come and say, wow, that was so powerful. At least you can like the damn thing. But, you know, I know, you know, it's, it's having impact and it doesn't matter to me the quantity anymore. I just post now from a very authentic place and it's going to land or it's going to land. I love that. And Nina, the one area of the book we haven't talked about and, and we can go as deep or not as you want is forgiveness. And yeah. you wrote from such a vulnerable place and as a father of a 15 year old boy and 12 year old next week, they both have their, their birthday or in the next two weeks, reading that was so hard to comprehend my heart really, you know, I'm even getting emotional thinking about it now cried for you and in, in what you and your mother went through. And I, I think the the time in the ashram was a time for both of you that allowed some healing 
-hmm. and some forgiveness. And you talk about it as 20 years where you just buried it. And all of a sudden you had the power to find freedom through forgiveness. And you've mentioned a couple of times that that you had the tragedy in your life and and you go into a lot of detail and look, I don't know how much you're comfortable, comfortable speaking to, but how did you find that forgiveness for what you both went through in your lives? Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for your kindness and your compassion and, you know, your heart thoughts. I really appreciate it. And I am comfortable talking about it. I mean, I put it in the book and it it was hard to be that vulnerable. But again, I went back to if this is going to impact someone or change someone or shift their mentality, then it's all worth it. So I am very open about, you know, my my tragedies in my past. And so I did lose my brother um, and dad at 16 to to a murder suicide. My mom wanted to leave. You know, it was a very toxic and abusive marriage from my dad towards my mom. So it took her 22 years to finally give him divorce papers. Uh, A lot of taboo in Indian culture around divorce and leaving your partner. And when she finally did, he went quite neurotic. And that the ultimate, you know, result of all of that was losing them to a murder suicide. And all the detectives on the case actually told me his plan was to take me as well. So another reason why I wake up every day and I'm like, I am just lucky to be alive because that was the universe's plan for me. And it was very, very coincidental how I happened to not be home. It was, it's, that's a whole story in itself. So I suppressed and repressed. As I said, I, I did a bit of, you know, I, I did, I was in my guidance counselor's office a lot. I went to uh, the season center for grieving children, which I do a lot of volunteer work now, peer to peer support group. They're phenomenal and amazing. But I, it was too much. I was 16, right? So I was a year younger than your son. And it's already awkward and hard enough being a teenager. And I just, I went to business school. I had a great career and I suppressed it all. It was too much for me to, to handle. And then um, came back from the ashram and then my mom got sick. My mom was diagnosed with ALS or Lou Gehrig's and she passed away, you know, two years to her diagnosis. And that was absolute heartbreak. And I thought, okay, and now I've lost my entire family and the grief was so prevalent because when my mom died, um, it, all the stuff came back from my dad and brother that I hadn't really dealt with. And it suddenly hit me that, because when it came up, it was those fresh emotions, even though it was 20 years later, it was like anger and resentment and, you know, hurt, you know, towards my dad. And all of it came back. And I thought, I'm feeling all of these things and it's impacting me. He's dead and gone. This anger, and it's that whole quote of you, anger is like a ball of fire. (laughs) It's going to burn your hand first before you throw it. So I realized I am holding on to all this hurt and pain and anger, and I am not free from this. And my only way out, I realized, was to forgive him, was to forgive him. And it's not black and white. Um, was to go through the journey of letting go of that because it was only impacting me and it was only having a, this trickle effect to my life. So I went through a two-year process of reading about forgiveness, watching TED Talks on forgiveness, listening to podcasts on forgiveness. Because again, this is all, this journey is so personal. I can't tell you how to forgive someone and it's forgiveness slash acceptance. And it's not about forgiving the act yeah. You know, when it comes to trauma, I'm really careful. You know, you don't have to forgive the person that abused you or hurt you. 
um, necessarily. You don't have to, sorry, you don't have to right their wrong. But forgiving will allow you to open your heart and let go of all the resentment and anger toward Because that person's gone. They're gone, living their life. They're doing their thing. They might not even be here, but you're affected by it still. So how do you move through that? And for me, it was a process of forgiveness. We have many tips in the book, but the way I went through it was through empathy, was through really understanding how he got to that place. And wow, you must have been, this was the nineties. So nobody talked about mental health. Yeah. You were either in normal or you were in a psychiatric ward. That's kind of, you know, there wasn't really this. (laughs) Maybe you had a psychologist, but even then in the nineties was like, whoa, what, you know, there was so much stigma, right? Like, oh yeah, it was very secretive. Like you have a psychologist, what's going on? So he never got help. He never got help. And who knows how long those mental health issues were, you know, where they started and how they bubbled up. And I had to go through a process of really understanding him and thinking, you know, now being a mother, it's like, you must have been in a really fucked up place mentally to have done what you have done. And holy crap, I feel for you, you know, and it took me long. And sometimes it's even hard for me to say because my wasn't you, right? Like it's hard. It's a very polarizing place to be, but oh my gosh, when I got to that place, it was like the weight. I stopped holding on to so much. And and I, you know, my sister-in-law had said to me, energetically, it's like, we all have this drawer and we can only fit so much in the drawer. So if we're holding on to the old tchotchkes we picked up from Florida that are collecting dust and that are not serving us, that are weighing us down, there's no room. For anything new. And when I went through that process and I, I, you know, my mom passed away when I was pregnant. So I had my daughter, I was a new mom, but I was also healing. I went through that process and, and sure enough, once I worked to let go of all that, the book deal landed in my lap. Like I got asked to write, like who is, that is such a blessed, you know, like I got asked by Harper Collins to write. I started my business. There was just so much more space for me to do me. And, and again, it's not black and white. It's not like I've forgiven him. And I'm, you know, there's still that lingering piece and that we're human and that's okay. And I'm embracing that. Um, but forgiveness is freedom and it's so empowering to forgive and move past all the hurt and the pain for you, not for the other person. The person cannot be in your life anymore. It's for you. It's not about, you know, there's this thing about forgiveness. Oh, I have to have a talk with them. And then We'll rekindle our relationship. It doesn't have to be that way. They could not be in your life and you can forgive them and let go. And I think that's a really key distinction right there is we're not saying this forgiveness exercise is for the person you're forgiving. This forgiveness exercise is for you to simply give yourself the freedom of not carrying that weight forever. Exactly. It is all about you. And when you realize that, because sometimes it's very triggery to say, oh, forgive someone who hurt you. But if you make it about you, it's not, it's not triggery. It's about your healing. It's not about them. They don't even need to know that you're doing this. Yeah. You don't have to reach out to them and and they may, to your point, they may not even be here. And if they are, you don't have to give them a call and say, I forgive you. It's just mentally, mentally letting it go. Right. You don't need to contact your ex from high school to Instagram. Hey, I'm you know, it's just you, it's you and you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe don't do that. Maybe don't, don't, don't say you did it at our, at our advice. 
Do you have time, Nina, for a final four wrap-up question? Oh, of course. I have all the time for you. Okay. Yes. What is one book that you've read that's had a massive impact on your life? Too many to name. I'm going to talk about a recent example, and that is Dr. Joe Dispenza wrote a book called Becoming Supernatural. Oh. I don't know if you've heard of Dr. Joe Dispenza. I have, yes. Brilliant. And he's an avid meditator and he's a big believer in neuroplasticity. And this is what I love. There's so much science behind mindfulness and meditation right now. He's done MRI scans of the brain. He sees what happens in the brain. It's a very kind of, if you're a data geek like me and you like science and you like fact, it's a great one. It has shifted my meditation practice quite dramatically. It talks a lot about manifestation, about intention setting, basically supernatural. Why are you all knowing? <laughs> well, I wrote an article about the law of attraction today, and it wasn't overwhelmingly positive. Okay, interesting. <laughs> um, I, so, I, I, I <laughs> add this to your, what did you say, 950 books that you've read? Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> I would love to hear your, your thoughts. And I know there is some, and I hate using this term, but woo-woo, there is some woo-woo in the law of attraction, but there's science. There is science behind it. So that has been a really, really impactful uh, read, I'd say, in the, in the last couple of years of the power of thought. That's Absolutely. really the law of attraction. It, it's yeah. about the power of thought. You're going to put out there, I'm never going to do that. I'm never going to be able to do that. Oh, that's what you're going to manifest. That's right. That's right. There. This is what I see for myself. This is what I want. And intention setting takes it even a step further. You know, 10 years from now, what do I want? There's power and thought. That's really what it comes down to. And I'll be clear for the listeners because they, because I actually do all of these things. I, I have 10-year plans. I say affirmations daily. I think where I challenge a lot of the concept of the law of attraction is it actually does say in it that you have to take the action. It's not just the manifesting. And so really emphasizing the second half of the word and capitalizing action. So manifest, visualize, dream board. Now go get that shit done. Okay. <laughs> I love that. It's so funny because I had a conversation, you know, with, a, with an entrepreneur. She was looking for some advice and we came up with a saying and she made me a t-shirt. It was hilarious. We should have worn it today, but it's hustle and trust. Yes. Yes. Hustle and trust, right? Like do the work. Yeah. You can't just sit there on a beach and manifest. The million <laughs> yeah, it's not just going to come to you. <laughs> not just gonna come, you know, like, yeah, you got it. There's a part of it that is, you know, your action. And there's a part of it that is, you know, the universal law and thing and, and the law of attraction. Yes. That comes with it. But yeah, you, you got to do a bit of a hustle and then you let go. And that also, you know, from the hustle standpoint, takes away a lot of the stress because some people are like hustle, 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 and they're trying to achieve all the hustle. And then let go. I didn't know where my business was going to go. I gave myself one year. I was like, I'm going to give it one year. I had two clients. If it doesn't work out, I'm going to go back to corporate. Well, six years later, 50 clients later, you know, a book. I mean, I didn't know. I never, I never wanted to be an author. Okay. I failed high school English, <laughs> probably because of all the trauma, you know, I went from a straight A student to it, but I mean, you don't know how that's going to manifest when you trust, but do yes. the hustle let go, but you got to do the hustle. I agree with that part. You got to do the hustle. (laughs) And what's on your shelf right now? What are you reading that you're enjoying at the moment? I am reading a lot of books actually on, if you want to be truly transparent on Tantra, on meditation. I'm trying to really enhance 
my practice right now. I, I kind of yeah. dabble in in a lot of different, you know, there's so many facets to me where, you know, there's sometimes it's business stuff. So I'll have a few books going on at a time. But, you know, growth, I, I really resonated with you when I read your, you know, bio around, I want to keep growing, I want to keep learning and not just like get to this space. So a lot of what I read or the, the, you know, educational stuff I get involved in is like, how do I continue to learn? And I'm always reminded of because the listener might say, well, wait, he's always wanting to grow. But I thought we said we're supposed to recognize we're good enough. And there was a line I heard once from a visiting monk who said to the students, remember, beautiful and perfect as you are, and you can be better. And so it's that, that, yeah, yeah I'm enough. I'm good. I'm great yeah. today and I can be better. And so it's just oh. always recognizing. And, and I was thinking of that line last night, actually, and how as a, as a parent, we need to be a little better with that, with, with our kids. Because to your point, we're always focusing on winning the game or, hey, you got a tournament this weekend. You got to play this way instead of just saying, you know, hey, son, proud of the proud of the man you're becoming today. And, and you can always be better, but I'm proud of you right now. Right. So I it love that. sticks out. Sticks out. The, and the better that I got to be better, I just want to emphasize, shouldn't come from pressure. Should come from inspiration. Yes. Yes. From the more I fill my cup, the more I learn, the more I grow, the more I can share with the rest of the world, the more I can yeah. help other people. And, and being that conduit is exactly. definitely, definitely the goal. And Nina, what is something that you've spent less than $1,000 on in the last year that you've said, Nina, I wish I bought this a little bit sooner? Wow. Spent a less than $1,000 on. Oh, that's a great question. I'm having a hard time. I'm not very much of a shopper and a buyer because I'm so inwards, right? <laughs> so I any new meditation like, cushions? I, I just was going to say that you literally read my thought. <laughs> I literally was going to say my new meditation cushion. That's <laughs> that freaked me out there. See the power of thought. I'm telling you, energy exchange. <laughs> you totally are. You're very present, by the way. You're a very present uh, interviewer. Okay. But yeah, I was going to say my new my new meditation. Anything to in enhance, you know, my practice or things. I and mean, they don't cost a lot of money. That's why I love this path. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Although, and it's so social media. I saw that there was a website I was on. I think it was Instagram probably. And it showed these images of these beautiful Japanese wood meditation tools, if you will. So for like kneeling and a little table yeah. and I, I was, they were so beautiful. And I was like, oh, I want to, and then I was like, but these are so expensive. Like all I need to do is sit on the ground. Like, so I, right? I didn't buy them, but I remember my son look at the, looking at them and being like, oh, those are so, so nice, dad. And I think he might've said, but do you need them? <laughs> you, need like, them? you can just use a pillow. Yeah. Um, no, I don't, son. <laughs> I don't need them, but I have to say posture is important in meditation. Yes. 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 <laughs> your butt is slightly elevated. So your spine's not curled because when we sit on the floor, the spine's curled. So having that very good posture, not to put pressure on the posture, but just the more kind of straight your back is comfortably straight, the, the easier the airflow is in and out. So, so that is an important practice. The other thing I would say was my, what do you call them? Like the holders when you're a content creator and you can put your cell phone in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you're not, yeah, I try to keep my phone away from me. 
yeah, I try to, I try to do as much as possible. The, I, most of my content creation I do on the laptop, use different tools to post it. And then, okay. and then as much as possible, stay away from the phone. Although smart, not very good at it. <laughs> so a last question for you, what is in your life, something that you've done for growth, whether it's a habit change, a behavior change or, or a mindset shift? that's had an oversized impact on your life? Great question. It is chapter one of my book, which is awareness. I lived in a place of repression, suppression, toxic positivity, spiritual bypassing. I know I say I was into spirituality in the nineties, but I didn't address, I kind of used that as a crutch and the whole good vibes only, everything's going to be fine. It's all going to be okay. You know, I didn't actually go inwards and evaluate the heaviness, um, my drawer that was so incredibly stuffed with things. So the awareness that I brought to self and going on that inwards journey has by far been the most and continues to be. Like I said, I just did that 20 week trauma healing program because I saw the crime scene and I'm 25 years later, still traumatized by it. Can't, you know, have a hard time seeing blood scenes and movie, you know, I had to move through that. So the constant work of going inwards and evaluating and becoming very aware of what's in there. Cause as I said, in that line in the book, you, you cannot let shit go unless you bring the shit to surface and it's painful and it's hard sometimes, but is it ever empowering and relieving when we're able to look at it and then let it go? That's beautiful. Nina, we went pretty deep and wide and there's so much more for the listeners. Go get the book. Uh, there's so many more beautiful lessons for them to pick up. But is there anything specific that you can think of that we didn't cover that you want to make sure you get across to the to the listeners? Yeah, I think this journey is so personal and you know what's right for you. The power of your intuition, the power of that whole 8 billion people in the world, but there is only one you lean in, you know, and I know we talked about this, but I just want to reiterate, stop looking externally for all the validation for the shoulds or go inwards. We are so, there's so much power in that. So lean in, heal yourself from the inside out, not through all these external, you know, get buying the house, whatever you're doing, you know, re retail therapy, whatever you're doing outside to fix it, it's a band-aid yes. until you actually go inwards. Love it. And where can our listeners find you? Uh, ninapurewell.com. I pick my poison with social media. So I saw you, you know, on Twitter. I'm not on Twitter. I'm on Instagram or I'm on LinkedIn. I TikTok three times now and I just can't. But my website, you can find, you know, how to get your hands on the book, um, corporate workshops. Um, I do stuff with kids. I do stuff in grieving, but ninapurewell.com. Perfect. And we will get all that in the show notes. Thank you for joining me today. It was a great Thank conversation. Thank you so much for that wonderful conversation. I so appreciate it. If you like the podcast, you'll love our new newsletter, The Growth Guide. Every Thursday, straight to your inbox with the goal to help you be better, achieve more, and become financially free. Check it out at our website, thegrowth.guide. Subscribe and learn more.